Please take your Bible and turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, as we begin our last cycle, the seventh cycle in the book of Revelation tonight. It's hard to believe we are there if you've been with us the whole time. Been going through this book for a little over a year, I think now. But if you've been with us the whole time, you might remember our first cycle in Revelation started way back in chapter 2. Chapter 2 and 3, we had the seven letters to the churches. This wonderful picture of the church militant, the church in this world being sanctified. And then for months, really now, we've been focusing on cycles 2 through 6 from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 20. And we've been getting different glimpses of God's plan of salvation through judgment this whole time. So now, chapter 21 and 22, we get a picture of the church triumphant in this last cycle. The church in glory, the church fully and finally sanctified. It's a wonderful picture. And we got a glimpse of that if you were with us a couple weeks ago in the first eight verses of 21. And now John's going to kind of expand on those images of this new creation, this bride and this city. So we will focus on verses 9 to the end of the chapter for two weeks. I'm kind of doing what Chad did this morning. It was too much of a sermon, so I'm splitting it into two weeks. So 9 to 27, we'll read that whole thing, but we'll focus primarily on 9 to 17 this week as we see a picture of this new creation. So Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. Let me remind you, this is the word of our living God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh Jachneth, and the twelfth Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, 
and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God makes its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, our glorious, great triune God, it is a blessing, Lord, to draw near to you and worship knowing that in Christ we belong in your presence because all of our sins have been washed away by his precious blood. And we are your children adopted into your family forever. So now, Lord, we long for the day when our faith will be sight when we will finally behold what no eye has seen and no ear has heard and what our hearts could only imagine. Father, help us to long for what you have prepared for those that love you. I pray that your word tonight, this passage, will help us long for it even more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, when our youngest son, Finn, was adopted, we took him to Disneyland to celebrate. It was a really fun trip with friends and family, and since it was his first time to Disney, we had a lot of fun for a while preparing him for the trip. I can remember for months talking to him about Disneyland, just describing what it's like to spend a day in Disneyland. And the more I described it, the more I realized, and my family realized, it was really hard to describe to a little kid what it would be like to spend a day in Disney. I remember saying things like, you know what, it's kind of like a giant playground. There's, There's no slides or swings or jungle gyms, but there is an island A whole island, Tom Sawyer's Island, that you can run around on, explore caves and find buried treasure. And there's a whole, there's a tree house. You can climb this giant tree house like Tarzan and look out and see all kinds of things. And I could see his eyes just light up with excitement. I remember continuing, I said, Disneyland is also a place where movies basically come to life. If you think about it, right? You can meet the characters in the movie. You can go meet Mickey Mouse in his house. You can fight with the people in Star Wars. You can go visit Dory and Nemo on a submarine. And I remember describing these things to Finn and starting to see his amazement turn into confusion. (laughs) Because his mind just couldn't comprehend what it would be like to be in this kind of place. And it's all in one particular place. He just couldn't imagine that there could be a place like this. And I remember myself and my wife included, we kind of got to the point where we said, you know what, buddy? Words just aren't enough. Words aren't enough. You have to see it for yourself. And in many ways, although this is far better than Disney, this is a lot like what's happening here at the end of the book of Revelation. God is piling on metaphor after metaphor and image after image from the Old Testament. And it can be overwhelming in some senses, even confusing at times, because we can't fully comprehend what it'll be like in this new creation. 
But even though we can't fully comprehend this new creation, we get just a small taste of the glory that's to come. And that is enough to help us long for the day when we will see it for ourselves. And that's what I hope, I've been praying that we would do in these next few weeks that we have in these chapters, that we would long for this new creation, long to be there with Christ and his church. Now, it's nearly impossible to summarize this, the rest of this chapter in one sentence, but I tried. So give me credit for that. And hopefully, as we go through this next couple of weeks, this will give you kind of a, a format, a way to see what's unfolding in this chapter. So in a nutshell, the rest of this chapter from 9 to 27 basically teaches this. The new creation, in the new creation, God's people will dwell with God in glory, security, and holiness. God's people will dwell with God in perfect glory, security, and holiness. Now you notice there are four parts to that. We'll deal with the first two tonight. We'll talk about the glory of God's people in the new creation and the security of God's people in the new creation. And then next week we'll focus on what it means to dwell with God in perfect holiness. So first, the glory of God's people in the new creation. And the first thing I want you to see is a glorious contrast that John is setting up here. There's a glorious contrast here between the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, the the city of God that we see here in chapter 21, and the prostitute, Babylon, the city of man that we saw starting in chapter 17. In fact, here, keep your finger in 21. Turn to 17 really quick. We'll begin with talking about This prostitute, Babylon, I know we talked about this, it's been months now, but there's a lot of similarities in these visions, and I want to draw them out, it's really important here. First of all, the visions are actually, there's kind of, they're both a mixed metaphor. They're both about a woman who's described as a city, right? We have the bride, which is the new Jerusalem, and then in chapter 17, now we have the prostitute, which is the city of Babylon. And interesting enough, both visions kind of start the same way. The angel seems to carry John spiritually to this vantage point, this lookout point. Now in 21, he goes on a high mountain to see the glory of the bride of Christ. But in chapter 17, as we'll see, he goes to a desert, to the wilderness. So let's look, chapter 17, verse 3, this picture of the prostitute here. Verse 3. And he, that's the angel carried me, that's John, away in the spirit into a wilderness. There it is, or a desert in some of your translations. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Or in other words, she looked really beautiful. She looked like royalty, but it was all fake. It was all charade. It was just an imitation of the great glory of the bride to come. And this prostitute gained this glory from her sin, from her deception. Look at the middle of verse 4. We see that. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. Mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. See, this is the first woman. This is Babylon the prostitute, adorned with precious jewels and stones like gold. Looks like royalty, but again, it's all fake. 
It's all a picture, really, of her impurity, her idolatry, her godlessness, because she is a false church, a false bride. Now turn to 21. Turn back to 21. We'll see the picture of the true bride in contrast. You need to see the similarities here. On the surface, it looks like they're very similar, but when you look deep, there's some glorious differences here. Back to verse 9, 21 verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. You see the difference already? Carrying him away to this high mountain. And that's a really important distinction in Scripture. Because the desert, the wilderness, is the place where God's people go to battle temptation. To meet sin and Satan and be tested. But a mountain is where God's people go to meet with God. To get a glimpse of his glory. And that's exactly what we see with this beautiful bride. Look in the middle of verse 10. The angel showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So even though it's glorious on the outside, she is holy. And why is she holy? Because she's coming down out of heaven from God. You see, there's the origin of her holiness. The bride, this holy city, is coming out of heaven from God because she's part of the new creation. Part of the creation we talked about last time in verse 2 of this chapter when it says, God is making all things new. So this holiness is not her own. It's God's holiness. It's God sanctifying his bride, adorning his bride. And the prostitute, on the other hand, all of her glory is from herself. And again, it's a sham. It's a false presentation of glory. Look at verse 11. She is having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, I know on the surface this may sound very similar to the prostitute. We have bright, clear jewelry. But this says right there in the beginning, having the glory of God. And you know what? We've seen this description before of jasper clean as crystal, haven't we? If you remember back in Revelation chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but listen to Revelation 4.3, how God is described in this passage. And he who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. You see what God's doing here? The bride and the prostitute both have this outward glory. But the prostitute's glory is fleeting. It's fake. It's deceptive. On the other hand, the bride's glory is authentic. It's eternal. It's true. Because the bride is from God. She shines with his glory. It's a foreign glory for her. Because as we saw this morning, she wasn't always that way. She looked a lot more like the prostitute at times, but now she is fully sanctified. And she's clothed in the garments of salvation. And now she perfectly displays God's character. That's what it means to glorify God. Displaying God's goodness, displaying his character for all the world to see. In a way, this picture is almost like Moses coming down Mount Sinai, if you remember, after spending time in the presence of God and and his people saying, I can't even look at you. Cover your face. Put a veil over your face because he was almost glowing with the glory of God. 
Or think of the city on a hill. In Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus talks about the church is the city on a hill that is a light to all the nations, to the whole world, displaying God's glory perfectly one day. Or Philippians 2.15, it says the church will one day be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. And what will they look like on that day? They will shine like stars in a crooked and twisted world. See what God's saying here? When the church is fully sanctified, when she is conformed to the image of the Son of God, then she will shine brighter than anything else in all of creation with the glory of God. And on that day, even though the prostitute might look very glorious and enticing to us now, she won't even compare to the glory, the beauty, the majesty of the church on that last day. Now, who will be part of this great city, this glorious bride? Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, well, John says, The city had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. Now, I hope this description sounds familiar to some of you, especially if you're in my grace group, and I'm looking at some of you, because we just finished the book of Numbers. And this depiction here, this picture, comes right out of the book of Numbers. I hope some of you are thinking, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like the camp of Israel in the beginning of the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 2, when all the people are counted and the tribes are settling, and they're all settling around the tabernacle there in the center, do you remember how they were camped? Three to the east, three to the west, three to the north, three to the south. Just like the gates in the city. It's a picture of the camp of God, which is intentional there. It's drawing from the imagery that we see there because they're dwelling in the presence of God. And this city is guarded by angels, just like the Garden of Eden, by the way. Guarding the presence of God, which we'll talk more about next week. But also even the camp of Israel. If you remember at the end of the book of Numbers... When Balaam goes and tries to curse Israel in Numbers 22, what happens? He gets closer and closer to curse, but the angel stands in the way, and his donkey sees it, but he doesn't. He ends up cursing the donkey and getting angry, and it's an interesting scene. But the picture there is the angel is guarding the people of God, and as we see the same thing here. So this is including the people of God, talking about the people of God, but we're only seeing Israel here, it seems. Is this only about the Jews? Is this just about the nation of Israel itself? Well, of course not. Look at verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Well, if you haven't noticed, this is just an overload of 12s, isn't it? If you remember in Revelation, 12 had a specific role in this book. 12 often was used to represent the people of God. And it is here as well. 12 gates for the 12 tribes, that's representing the old covenant people of God. And then you have 12 foundations for the 12 apostles, now representing the new covenant people of God. So together what we see in this glorious city is the fullness of God's people, both Jew and Gentile. And this is how these twelves have been used all throughout the book of Revelation. If you remember in Revelation chapter 4, we had 24 elders, 12 for the old and 12 for the new. In Revelation chapter 7 and 14, we had 144,000, 
which represents the 12 from the old, 12 from the new, and then multiplied by a thousand to describe the fullness of God's people. So what's the message here? All of God's people will be there. Every saint, every believer who trusts in Jesus will be there. So if you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, because you know you fall desperately short of the glory of God, you have not obeyed his law, and you know your only hope is to trust in the one who obeyed in your place, who laid down his life in your place to atone for your sin and to raise from the dead, to give you newness of life so you can dwell in this city forever. Brothers and sisters, this is our home. And believe it or not, we will one day perfectly reflect the glory of God with all the saints that we read about and hear about all throughout history. Like Abraham and Moses and Esther and Paul and John and all of our heroes of the faith, they'll be there. We'll worship God with them. That's the picture here. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? This picture of perfect glory and unity. But I know there are days, at least there are days for me and I'm sure many of us, when we might be afraid or we might fear that this might never come. When we look out on the church landscape around us or just the state of the church in our world, and we feel sometimes like it looks a lot more like Babylon, like the prostitute, than this glorious bride. As we saw in the very beginning of Revelation, we have rich, apathetic churches like Laodicea. We have big, fancy, but spiritually hollow churches like Sardis. We have churches that may be doctrinally sound, but weak in love and evangelism like Ephesus. And on the other hand, we have those that are loving and evangelistic, but they've become very weak in doctrine and squishy to get everybody in the doors. And I think if we're honest, as we said when we went through those letters, we can see a lot of those same weaknesses in ourselves, can't we? And in our church. I'm so thankful that we care so much about doctrine and sound teaching. But that also means we need to be faithful and grow in evangelism. So thankful we are trying to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, but we have so much more room to grow in prayer, in unity, in care and love for one another. And just because we're doing great in one area doesn't mean that we're okay in every possible area. And I know at times, especially when you look within, it can feel very hopeless. It can seem like the future of the church is at jeopardy. But brothers and sisters, as it says in Matthew 16, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it as it says in ephesians 5 he is a good husband washing us with the pure water of the word sanctifying us even now so don't lose hope when you look at yourself in the mirror and you look at the church and you think it's not very glorious right now it seems pretty weak Pretty sinful, pretty divided and and just distracted. It may not be glorious right now, but one day, one day, it will be more glorious than anything else in all creation. And so will you, if you trust in the Lord. We've seen the glory, the coming glory of God's people in the new creation. Let's look now at the security of God's people. And we got a taste of this in verse 12 when this new city is described as a fortress. Look back at verse 12 with me. Verse 12 says, it had a great high wall with 12 gates 
And at the gates, 12 angels, or those are the 12 guards. Now, you see, you have to see the picture here. High walls in this time, especially, are pictures of security. They're pictures of stability. They don't have the modern military weapons uh, that we have, right? They don't have tanks and armies and aircraft carriers. They don't have all these things. They don't have bombs to defend themselves and all these things. They have walls. And the higher they are and the wider they are, the more secure they feel. I know it's hard for us to even picture what this would be like, but maybe the best picture that we're most familiar with is you watch like the Lord of the Rings movies. And you think of Helm's Deep and you see that giant wall and the people are boasting, look, no one is going to enter this castle. Our walls are too thick. They're so high. We are completely safe in this place. That's the picture we're getting here. Walls are a really big deal to God's people. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, talking about building the walls around Jerusalem. Because to God's people for so long, strong walls meant safe people. Now, does this mean there will be a literal wall around the new Jerusalem, the new creation? Now, I don't think so. I don't think it's even close here because, one, there are no more enemies. There's no one to keep out. They're all in the lake of fire, as we saw a couple weeks back in chapter 20. Also, the proportions of these walls are just utterly ridiculous. And that's part of the point. Look at this in verse 15. Look at these walls. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadium. Now, it probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but that is equivalent to about 1,400 miles. Just to put that in perspective, that's Las Vegas to Chicago. That's huge. That's one side. And remember, this is a four-square city, 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. would take up most of the United States in a way. Well, how tall is this wall? Look at the end of verse 16. Its length and width and height are all equal. So it's, it's not just a square, it's a cube. It's not just 1,400 miles long and 1,400 miles wide. It's 1,400 miles high. That's insane. Put that in perspective, Everest is five and a half miles high. We're talking 250 times the height of Everest. It's just, this is lower orbit we're talking about here. If you want to put this into perspective, right? It just sounds insane. And it continues. Look at verse 17. He also measured its wall, probably the width of the wall, 144 cubits, about 216 feet, which seems small for how tall the wall might be. But then look, I love this little addition here. By human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. It's almost as if John is looking at this going, am I I seeing this right? And the angels say, I'm measuring it the same way you are. That's the picture here. Yes, it seems ridiculous because it is. It's ridiculous to make a point because just like all the numbers in Revelation, this is symbolic as well. What does the wall symbolize? Well, it symbolizes once again the fullness of God's people. Did you notice more 12s? 12,000 stadia, 144, which is 12 times 12. Even a cube in itself, 12 edges in many ways. So there's 12s everywhere representing the old covenant people and the new covenant people. All the people of God will be there. 
And interesting enough, the size of the city, just the sheer size, is about the size of John's known world at this point. Which is interesting to me because it's almost as if God is saying, look, my glory will spread to the ends of the earth. Not one tribe, language, or people will be left out. There's more evidence of that even at the end of this passage. But that's the picture. The fullness of God's people. All of my people are secure. And secondly, this is a symbol of measurement in the Bible. Whenever things are measured, whenever things are numbered, it's a picture of ownership. It's a picture of protection. We've even talked about this in Revelation before. We've already even talked about numbers. In the book of Numbers, why does God number his people? Why does he command them to number his people? He's saying, these belong to me. These people are mine. And I will protect them in the wilderness and on the way to the promised land. Jesus, when he says in Matthew 10.30, that even the hairs on our head are numbered. Why does he say that? Because he's saying, I care for you down to the smallest little detail. I protect you. I value you. So when God says, go and measure the city, it's like he's saying, look, this belongs to me. This is my bride. This is my people. Bought and paid for with the precious blood of Christ, and I will protect her forever. My son has already laid down his life for her, and I will see that to the end. Really what I think is happening here is a completed picture of what we saw in Revelation chapter 11. If you don't remember that, let me read a couple verses from Revelation 11. When John was told to go measure the temple, John was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I know it's been a long time since Revelation 11, but this, in this passage, is a picture of the church's vulnerability, but also their invincibility. John was told to measure the people, measure the temple, because they are spiritually secure. They belong to God. They will make it to the end, but don't measure the outer courts. That's been given over to the Gentiles, and it's there where God's people will struggle, will suffer. They will even, many of them, die as my witnesses. The picture here is that the church is secure spiritually, but now in this world, this world where we're being sanctified, there's a physical vulnerability, isn't there? But not in Revelation 21. In this new creation, it's all measured. It's almost as if God is confirming it, saying, yes, absolutely, it is all secure. No more vulnerability for my people only invincibility because all the enemies are defeated there's no one left to threaten my people even the enemy from within the heart of stone is taken away and they're given a heart of flesh they're free from sin forever there's not even really a need for a wall at all is there which i think is funny at the end verse 25 says and its gates will never be shut There's no need to even shut the gates to keep out. Who are they going to keep out? There's no more enemies left. This giant wall is a picture. It's a symbol of God's love and care and protection of his people. He's telling his people, you have entered my eternal rest. You cannot be more secure. 
And this will never go away because I have saved you. Christ has saved you, as Hebrews 7 says, to the uttermost. Brothers and sisters, isn't this what we long for? This kind of peace and security and eternal rest? Kids, don't you want a world like this where there's no more fear? No more tears, no more scary things out there, no more locks on doors, no more scary places, dangerous places that you can't go. No more division, no more fights that cause you to lose family members or relationships. I mean, adults, can you even imagine a world like this where there's nothing to worry about? We're so used to worrying about everything, aren't we? You don't have to worry about safety or health or finances anymore. You don't have to worry about anything because there's no more sin. There's no more struggle. There's no more sleepless nights. No more stress. I know we all long for this world, don't we? Problem is, we don't want to wait for it. Problem is, we want this world here and now, and we will disobey God's law to get it, to get the safety and security in this world right now. See, I know there are many in this world and probably many in this room that don't just long for safety and security. We worship it. We idolize it. And this can show up in hundreds of different ways in our lives. I think probably most of us, it shows up in the way we evangelize or the lack of our evangelism. We don't want to go and share the gospel. Why? Because we want to be safe and secure. We don't want to threaten that relationship, have those awkward family encounters at the next holiday or whatever it might be, or with our neighbor. We don't trust the Lord to share the gospel and to work. We trust in our own safety, securing our own lives. Maybe we do this financially as well. We don't give generously, or maybe we give reluctantly because we really don't trust the Lord to provide. We don't trust the Lord to meet every possible need, so we have to figure out how to get ready for every financial pitfall that might come our way. And like I said, there are hundreds of ways we might worship security. So brothers and sisters, as you sort those out, and we can talk about those later, let me tell you this. If you are repentantly trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you cannot be more secure spiritually than you are right now. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says we are seated with Christ right now in the heavenly places, united to him by faith. And yes, we're still physically vulnerable in this world. And our temptation, because we're physically vulnerable, is to run to Babylon. Is to find security there in her glory. Rather than waiting, trusting the Lord for the glory and the security to come. Brothers and sisters, don't do it. God is calling us to persevere in faith. To find security not in the here and now in this world, but in the world to come. And he's showing us and telling us any security that we may try to find for ourselves now cannot compare. Cannot compare to the glories to come for Christ, in Christ and in the church. Let's pray that God would help us to persevere to the end. Father, thank you for your word and this wonderful picture of the church and glory. Father, help us to find our security, our hope, our peace, our rest only in Jesus. And as our hearts get bent in on ourselves and bent towards the world, Lord, expose our sin. Help us as brothers and sisters to call each other out so that we might repent and trust to Jesus. 
Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus to the end. And we pray that you would keep your word to keep us to the end as we would persevere in faith by the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.